the cool thing about precision fermentation is that our products will be scaled faster than, than cultured meat products. We see ourselves in a position where we want to create the image of people can trust science. This is something that lots of the tech companies in the past, specifically in agriculture, have not done right. Our focus is the advantages that the technology will bring to us as a society. And this is what we need to communicate. I personally am very offended by the term LabMate. We met with the FDA and USDA. We felt very confident that safety is not the ultimate issue here. It's actually labeling. What gets you motivated to try cell-cultured seafood? Yes, they're very excited by sustainability, but what really hit home was mercury, microplastics and environmental pollutants. The computer industry in the 1970s is very much like the food tech industry in the 2020s here. I truly think this is as transformational as the computer sector was in the 1970s. We will see 50 years of evolution here. Hey peeps, in this episode, we will look at the consumer acceptance of dairy and seafood products. And I talked with Raphael Bolgensinger, founder and CEO of Formo, and Lou Cooperhouse, president and CEO of Blunalu, about that. Both of these companies have been on our podcast before, in the first season on cellular agriculture, in episode four and episode six. In this one, we focus on the difference in the consumer perception of dairy and fish versus cultured meat products. And I found that to actually be quite interesting and insightful. I know, I know, I know, we are getting really nerdy and niche in this season. Our next one will cover food waste and we are already working on it. I always love to hear from listeners, so please don't hesitate to reach out to me via LinkedIn. Just type in Marina Schmidt, Marina Schmidt with DT. I would love to hear your feedback and get in touch. So let's jump right in. This is Red to Green. You're listening to season three on promoting alternative proteins. 12 episodes covering consumer acceptance and food psychology of novel foods, like cell-cultured meat and alternative dairy. To receive the best takeaways on food tech and sustainability, subscribe now and sign up to our newsletter at redtogreen.solutions. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Rafa, it's uh, lovely to speak to you on Red to Green. Thanks so much for the invitation, Marina. Super cool to be here. Yeah, super cool to have you. So to jump into the topic that you're working on, can you describe briefly what Formo is doing? So at Formo, we're using precision fermentation to produce real milk proteins, casein proteins, whey proteins. Um, the fundamental building blocks of the dairy products we know, cheese, yogurt, ice cream, and so forth. And we're using these very specifically in an application on European cheese products. So we are focusing on, I would say, the great heritage that we have here in Europe in cheese manufacturing and artisanal cheese making and use these novel ingredients to basically do the same thing without the animals. And would your product be considered vegan? Great question. I'm vegan myself. I would say, yes, it's vegan. It depends on how you define veganism, really. For most of the people I know who started their vegan journey, if you want to call it that way, because of ethical or sustainability reasons, this is definitely vegan because there aren't any animals involved in the process. Mm -hmm. However, the ingredients are nature identical to the ones you find in animal products. So if your motivation to be vegan is, you know, for example, because of an allergy that you have or because you don't want to consume something that is identical to what animals produce then probably is not so it's a question of definition i would say mm. yeah so we need to clarify this is not plant-based yeah. cheese 
It's not made, exactly. from, made from plant-based sources. So we have these fields of cellular agriculture and precision fermentation. How is precision fermentation similar and yet different to that? Yeah, as you say, I mean, precision fermentation is one of the technology in this industry of cellular agriculture. I mean, really short description of cellular agriculture could be the production of agricultural products through cell cultures rather than through animals. And this is the same for tissue engineering, which is the technology around the cultured meat or cultured seafood products. And it's the same for precision fermentation, which is obviously using the products that cells are making, proteins and fatty acids that are identical to the animal products. What is similar, it's the same as the ingredients and products from animals. What is different is the end product is on one side the cells. So when we talk about cultured meat and cultured seafood, um, it's the cells that you're eating, whereas uh, the products from precision fermentation, those are acellular products, meaning that it's not cells, but it's actually organic compounds such as proteins and fatty acids. So we can distinguish between cellular agriculture and acellular agriculture, which is a common way of separating these two. And within acellular agriculture, there are also other things like eggs, gelatin. Are there yeah. some others that come to mind that are considered to be a part of acellular agriculture? Yeah, a bunch of things. I mean, all of the aroma compounds, enzymes that you use for food manufacturing already today, such as chymosin, these are all acellular products at the end of the day, right? So it also has a long-standing history and tradition in the food industry already, which is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So I love that because on the one hand, you're doing something that's extremely novel, creating cheese that is like real cheese without having the cow. And But then the actual techniques or the history of the field, it's not that novel if you look at the food tech space itself, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, the core idea of producing animal ingredients through or mammal ingredients or compounds through fermentation is, as you say, like that is 40 years old, but basically using those techniques for now the production of bulk ingredients is something that is now being pioneered in the space. And can you describe to our listeners how this process actually looks like? With what would you start out and how would that become actual cheese in the end? Sure. So in terms of if, if you want to start out and you think about, I want to produce milk proteins, what you need is you need the genetic information to produce these, right? In every mammal or in every organism, you would find a genetic sequence, basically just the universal language of the universe for organisms to, to basically encode a certain information. And you would go and look which of these genetic informations or which of, of that part of the genetic information do you need for the production of these proteins. And then you would then replicate that information in a host organism. And, and today in the industry, there's different organisms that are being used. You can find people working with bacteria, with yeast, with fungi, basically just microorganisms who are very, very efficient in using nutrients that we feed them and turning them into products that we want. You would then instruct these organisms with that genetic information. You would feed them mostly carbohydrates nitrogen so that they grow and always translate that genetic information into the compounds that you want. So milk proteins, casein, whey protein, the building blocks of milk, which you then can harvest after that, a process of fermentation. 
And then you use these ingredients in, in cheese making. Those of you who are familiar with cheese making, I mean, depending on the cheese, but mostly you would start with the raw milk, you would acidify, you would add the chymus in. So the, the whey would drop out, you would have the curd, which is the casein and the fatty acids. You would press that depending on the cheese, you would dry that, you would ripen that and so forth. The same thing you basically do with our ingredients, right? Which is the cool thing of the whole technology, which is it's a novel process to produce ingredients. But it also combines that novelty with artisanal ways of producing the products because we are big lovers of cheese at Formo and we want to really preserve that great craftsmanship of, of product manufacturing. Mm, definitely, because that's such an important part also in the European cheese culture, yeah. European cheese culture, yeah. And to break it down a bit more succinctly, pretty much you take yeast cells and you... Would you say you genetically modify them? No, it's not, because and here we're again at this distinction between cellular products and acellular products, because at the end of the day, our cheese products do not contain the cells we work with, because those are contained in the fermenter, and you only take the nature-identical proteins they produce. It's not considered GMO, because you wouldn't find any genetic material in the product. Yeah, so the yeast cells you genetically modify just the yeast cells, which then get fed and create casein or whey protein in your case, which you then process into the final cheese. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's look at how precision fermentation fits into the whole progress in the field in terms of convincing consumers. How do you think is yeah. convincing people of eating your cheese different than convincing them of eating cell cultured meat? Yeah, I think to put this in perspective, if we look into consumer acceptance studies that others did on cultured meat and also some of the things that we did on, on precision fermentation, it's just tremendous to see how huge the demand and the desire of people already is to consume these products even before they hit the shelves, which is incredible, right? So I think even thinking about the fact that we would need to convince anybody, I think, is, is not entirely true. Although, where are the similarities and the differences between precision fermentation made products and, and cultured meat or tissue engineered products. I think one again is that the process that we use, which is obviously again, fermentation technology that we already use for decades and for millennia, essentially, I think it's something consumers can relate to very well, which also shows in, in these studies that uh, when you explain the process and you talk about how the nutrients are being converted into these ingredients through fermentation is something that gets a lot of positive connotations, I would say. And then the other thing is exactly what you asked before, which is that although we bioengineer yeast cells, the end product mm. is completely GMO free which is something that obviously consumers also value a lot. I guess at the end of the day, what is really the core of both technologies, where for me, everything comes together from my perspective is the change in social narrative. It's we, we are no longer using animals to produce animal ingredients. And this is the same for both technologies. The cool thing about precision fermentation is that since the fermentation infrastructure is more developed than the, the tissue engineering infrastructure, I, I would assume that our products and products of other precision fermentation players are will be scaled faster than, mm -hmm. than cultured meat products um, in the first years of market entry. And I think this will also, again, create an additional wave among consumers who, to adopt also cultured meat products faster. I mean, the same thing that already happens with plant-based products. I think one part of it is that when people think about meat, so meat eaters think about meat, they see it as something that is non-processed. 
it's just taken from mm -hmm. a cow and then presented on a plate. Yeah. Whereas cheese is something that is inherently more processed by definition. And so switching from a cheese that is directly from a cow versus to some cheese that is processed, but just in a different way, it's not such a big step. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And if you look into some of the data that is publicly available, I think a study that the grocer did on, on precision fermentation-based dairy products, this is exactly what that also reflected, right? When it comes to ice cream and cheese, which are more, let's say, processed products, consumer acceptance is better than for raw milk which is kind of the steak equivalent of the dairy world. So I think, I think you're right. Interestingly, in the second episode of the season, I talked with Isha Tatar about it, and she said that having something like snack foods would be so helpful to the growth of the field because then people don't try to directly differentiate, is this as good as the real thing? But if mm. it's a processed snack food made out of meat, so for example, meat chips, it has a different category and it may open up people's minds to these possibilities. Yeah, totally. That's a great idea. And then I think the other great approach, which is also some of the stuff that we think about and work on is something that is completely novel right show textures and functionalities that you haven't experienced before because then also you create a new category that nobody is you know making or mm -hmm. has no reference point right you are basically championing a whole new space of food so I, I would agree that that's a great approach and also i mean at the end of the day we need innovation not only in the type of how we produce things but also in the, in the way of how we package things how we sell things and how we present things because also of course preferences around those things are changing as well and i think speaking with a lot of the people in the space i would say that is very very purpose-driven to create a positive impact everybody will be looking for very sustainable packaging mm -hmm. to a local approach of producing and selling products because that's inherently what everybody of us in the space is actually after which is a more fair and equitable food system so let's look at the formal brand previously legendary you decided to make a b2c brand as far as i'm informed why did you yeah. go for b2c if some people would argue that with a b2b brand you can scale more easily you can reach a wider audience so you can have more impact yeah i think the underlying question that i see is if the story is with a b2b brand you can scale faster then your assumption will be that you're not limited by production capacity but you're limited by demand because you're basically mm. saying with b2b i can tap into more demand our conviction is that not demand is a limiting factor in the early years of this industry but actually the ramp up and the infrastructure so i think in the early days it won't be the question of oh how can we find people to sell this product to it will be where can we produce more because the demand is so huge and then for us, kind of the, the logic, you know, translation of that is a B2C approach in the early days, because also in a nascent field that is a lot around being perceived as some as an innovator, as a champion in the space, I think the positive gains of consumer admiration and perception is so valuable, right? And we see it with so many other products, I think impossible and beyond in that space, which is amazing. I think there's many other examples, you know, Tesla pioneering electric mobility. People thought it was boring. Yeah. Now people think it's cool. 
Same for us, I think. We don't want people to think animal-free is boring. We want them to believe it's cool. And we want to be there when the products get to the market. And then the second part of the story, and this is, again, the part of who we are and the DNA of the company, is that we're cheese lovers. And it's just natural for us to incorporate the end product in our company. We want to be at the product because we care about the heritage of the product. Super interesting. So you rebranded from Legendary to Formo. And when I saw that, I was wondering whether it had anything to do with the Amendment 171. So the amendment is pending legislature in Europe, which pretty much goes against plant-based dairy products and makes it harder for them to be called creamy or be even packaged in the same packaging. Oatly has done a lot of fantastic campaigning yeah. against it. I can highly recommend. Yeah, which I'm really grateful for. They're doing great. So uh, shout out to them. Thumbs up. Keep the great work up. Yeah, that was a very, very small aspect to the whole story. It mm. definitely played a role. Yes. But to be honest, it was more about like, ourselves you know we've grown a lot over the past two years and at the end of the day a name and the fonts we use and the imagery we use should be really a reflection of who we are and our ambition for us it's kind of the coming together of innovation and tradition that this world really reflects what's the meaning of formo there's a bunch of meanings and why we chose that name but also it is a translation of the latin world i i mold i form which is kind of again brings in this idea of shaping the future of shaping the industry and very actively in this first person singular, which kind of shows our aspiration to be the driver of mm -hmm. that innovation. And your brand is pretty science focused. So you decided to upgrade your brand quite a bit. There was a whole lot of rebranding yeah. going on. And now your messaging yeah. is very science focused. It's about we are scientists, we are doing this. It's quite focus also on the technology. And it's interesting because in an interview with Chris Bryant, who I know you've also worked with, some of his research has shown that talking about high-tech features of food products can be unattractive to consumers because many of them don't want to think about technology when they think about their food. So have you considered that when you were doing this rebranding? Totally. And I think we've obviously considered that. And I think The question really is, it's a big difference between analyzing what consumers think and what you yes. should do as a company. I think it's, it's a huge difference because if people tell me we don't care about technology in food or we don't like it, then my question also is, why is that? Why don't people care about technology? And then for me, it's a question of, okay, have we, have we done a bad job explaining the advantages of science? Have big corporates been not transparent enough around science? But also is a question of how you perceive consumers and human beings in general. If you think, oh, they're stupid, they don't care, they don't want to know, they want to be left alone, then sure, you're not going to tell them about the great advantages of science, which we all believe science is the key to solve so many challenges we face as human beings and, and as a species. And yeah, you ask yourself like, okay, what can we do to change that maybe for people? And we believe people and consumers out there, they do care. They're not stupid. 
they're intelligent and they want to know why we use these technologies. So we also want to be very transparent around it. We see ourselves in a position where we want to create the image of people can trust science. Science is a good thing. Tell everybody who's waiting for a COVID vaccination right now, they don't care about science. We clearly care about science. We use it in mobility. We use it in healthcare. We, we use it in telecommunications. We use it in every part of our lives. And it's a great thing because it can solve our problems. And this is really our stance. And we want to be bold on this as well and communicate that very openly. You are very nicely focused on your early adopters. So looking at the Formo brand, it really speaks to the people who would be likely first in line. And the question actually yeah. is, and we had that in an interview with Jack Abobo, there will be a point at which it's important to broaden the scope from not just addressing the early adopters, but then trying to address the mass market. And these are two very different approaches. As part of that, Jack was arguing that most people do not care about science. And for most people, science is actually something polarizing. And a large part of the population is very skeptical about anything related to science. So do you yeah. see yourself switching your messaging to then address wider market? Yeah, I think I, I have two aspects I would like to cover here. One is for sure, like when you go mass market, what really counts taste and price still when it comes to food. And this is also, this shows all of the research that we do. So as we mature and as the technology matures and as you through economies of scale, as we are able to basically compete on price with traditional products, I think this will be one of the biggest drivers that we have to address mass market in general. And there, obviously, also the messaging around those products would be different. But still, I want to challenge kind of this whole notion around people don't care about science. I guess at the end of the day, the question also is what is our responsibility as a company who, who is trying to create a future that we believe in, um, a reality that we believe in? And there are people out there, obviously, who, who maybe use kind of the fear of science or the fear of the unknown for their own interests, I think um, we need to take a different stance here. We need to, again, I think there is some element of educating people also about how great science can be. And to be very honest, the, the part about polarization, I mean, in, in our consumer acceptance studies, we very openly explained the technology. And, and what we actually found is that the polarization was actually really, mm -hmm. really low. But why? This is something that lots of the tech companies in the past, specifically in agriculture, have not done right, is that they focus, their focus is the technology. Our focus isn't the technology. Our focus is the advantages that the technology will bring to us as a society. And this is what we need to communicate. Right? I love that. So to get to the ending questions, Rafa, if you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest it in? I'm super excited about all kinds of technology, novel food and biotech, of course. So body mass fermentation, but also Salac. I see the people working there and I want them to succeed, which is why I would definitely invest in them because I also know that this, those will be a huge success. Yeah, one other area that I'm super interested in, but there's not many companies around today is quantum biology, which is basically the combination of quantum physics and biology. There are a bunch of startups using that already for drug discovery. I would love to see something like that for clean energy. So for example, like solar power basically making solar panels as efficient as processes in plants. That would be fantastic. Mm, okay, quantum biology, definitely something to look into. Regarding the area of food tech, sustainability, agriculture, what is a controversial or unusual opinion that you have that many people would disagree with? 
We don't need animals to produce animal products. I think until 2030, the majority of proteins won't come from animals. So we will have plant-based, fermentation-based, and cell act together will be more than 50% of this market. Wow. Wow, that's yeah. steep. And do you say that globally or in certain Western markets? I think globally. That's bold. One, definitely. I think what, what humans in general are super bad at projecting mm -hmm. is just exponential growth. If, if you look into these compounds that are being produced through precision fermentation in food manufacturing in the past, basically see when the technology takes off, it takes a few years and these products dominate the market because they're better, they're cheaper, they're more sustainable. Mm -hmm. Rafa, how can listeners connect with you? You can reach out to Rafael at formo.bio. So just write me a mail. It was amazing to have you on. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot, Marina. Thanks so much for having me. Lou, it's lovely to have you again on, at Red to Green. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back, Marina. It's been nearly a year, I think, since we last talked. And back then, I already was super impressed with Lunalu. And since then, lots of things have been happening. You've been putting in a lot of work and growing the company. Can you give a bit of an overview of what has developed in that past year? No, quite a bit, Marina. As you may recall, I believe I, I spoke in the past about kind of our the five-phase strategy we have with the end in mind. What does large-scale factory look like to produce delicious cell-cultured seafood in a profitable way and ideally accessible to all? And, and our model, as you may recall, is to, for example, in the case of bluefin tuna, today's model is a supply-restricted model. You know, most of the supply in the world goes to Japan for sushi use, and it's supply-restricted. And on restaurant menus, you know, literally food service operators are selling what is caught, and there's a highly variable, inconsistent supply chain. The Blue Nalo's model is to make a demand-driven supply chain where we arguably we could sell what consumers want, not what comes out of the ocean or the seas. And it can democratize something like bluefin tuna. So it's an extraordinary opportunity. With that in mind, we are now approaching what we call phase two and phase three of our five-phase strategy, where phase two is where we get the regulatory clearance that's required here in America. And phase three is where we make uh, small-scale volumes for sale in initially restaurants here in the U.S., And it's a real exciting time. So we kind of manifested that. We took a, a possession of a 40,000 square foot facility, 4,000 square meters here in San Diego. And in that facility, we're actually building out uh, that infrastructure to support both that phase two and phase three operation. So exciting, exciting stuff. And with that, we really evolved from a biology centric company to one that's really more engineering and operation centric and quality centric as well uh, as we continue to build strategic partnerships. So a lot has happened since the last time we talked. Yeah. And I saw that you want to go to market end of 2021. Is that still the case? It's, it's as soon as we have the FDA regulatory clearance. So we can't predict exactly when that will happen. When one is arguably first or among the first in America to go through this process, there's a, a series of unknowns that can occur that can cause delays for whatever reason. So if it's not later this year, it'll be certainly in uh, the first part of 2022. But it's somewhat imminent. We're just really need to build out of our facility in our initial stages and also complete all the documentation that's required of FDA. And, and candidly, th there is no playbook, if you will, for how this product uh, should go through the FDA process. So it's literally being created in real time. So we are literally working with them and really providing information. And it's basically a very iterative back and forth process, highly positive collaboration process. But nonetheless, when you're first, there's an awful lot of back and forth that happens. Mm. 
Regarding the regulation, you have been doing research on nomenclature, right? So that's connected to you applying for regulatory approval, right? That's absolutely correct. We knew that when we met with the FDA and USDA, we felt very confident that safety is not the ultimate issue here. It's actually labeling. Of course, all the safety, we all need to get through the appropriate process to demonstrate that. But labeling was something that there wasn't a clear solution. So we decided to be very proactive and rather than wait for others to decide and arguably have something that really wasn't a positive name or one that properly conveyed what we're doing, we actually sponsored research by a university professor, Dr. Bill Holman at Rutgers, and he did his own independent research and it was peer reviewed and published in the journal Food Science, where he looked at every name used in media, by companies and commerce in one way or the other, almost 100 different names were used and actually came up with a methodology to say these are appropriate names. And even the definition of appropriate is important. You know, names that weren't too derogatory, if you will, like slaughter-free might be considered to the uh, conventional animal industry or clean meat or lab-made. I personally am very offended by the term lab-made because this is made in a food processing facility very similar to microbreweries and many other processes. I think that whole logic got started when the first pictures of this product were shown in a Petri dish, frankly, in a lab setting, and it conveyed that situation. But I come out of the food industry and everything starts in a lab, but then it goes to a factory. There's no different. Yes. So that being said, so the term cell-based and cell-cultured as the description, both were shown to be very similar statistically as describing the process, but also very importantly, helping consumers determine that it wasn't conventional farm-raised or wild-caught seafood in our case, but it was something different. So it's important that they know what it is as best as they can, but they also are not confused and think it's something different. Like for example, the word cultured or cultivated could be confused with farm-raised. And that came out very clearly in the data. So all that being said is we sponsored that research. And then we also worked together with the Alliance of Meat, Poultry, and Seafood Innovation called AMPS Innovation here in the US. And there's seven member companies and also the National Fisheries Institute, which is made up of mostly the vertically integrated seafood companies in the United States. And in fact, the FDA issued a request for information on nomenclature. And fortunately, we had the data and we actually had various NGOs, you know, non-government organizations, and also trade associations like National Fisheries Institute write a letter in support of cell culture, basically as a name that creates a third category of seafood, wild, farmed, and now cell cultured, as being three demonstrations of seafood that the public can ultimately enjoy. Hopefully, a lot more cell cultured as soon as our volume is available. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Uh, Jacob Obo, in a previous episode, was arguing that nomenclature gets uh, too much attention. I'm actually not sure if it got it into the final episode because we edit out a lot from the interview. But he definitely said that. And it was more regarding consumer acceptance because in the end, people will just call it whatever the exactly. brand is called. People don't say plant-based burger as much as they say impossible burger, right? But exactly right. your example shows that nomenclature is in that sense important because it helps with the regulatory approval and doing own studies to clarify that improves the smoothness of the process, right? Absolutely. And Jack's point is spot on because it's all about branding, just like Apostle and Beyond. All of us doing cell culture, meat, poultry, or seafood products are using different processes, different flavor profiles, different product applications, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, I use example like another common usual name 
for those of your listeners that might use artificial sweeteners in their coffee, for example, it actually says on the bottom of a zero calorie sweetener. But then you look at the brand names, there's a brand called Equal that conveys that it's the same as sugar and it's artificial. Uh, and there's a brand called NutraSweet and, and so forth. Or people might call them yellow, blue, or pink or green for splendid other types. So all that being said, those are brand names that people know or even colors. They don't actually say, give me the zero calorie sweetener, but they're looking for a specific one. So that's mm-hmm. what this will be as well. It's about different brands that will be what consumers look for in the quality. I've learned over and over again in my food industry career that in, in the end of the day, it's taste is the most powerful criterion for repeat purchase. People will buy things the first time for various reasons about how they're communicated to. But if it doesn't deliver, with that experience of quality and taste and deliciousness and something they're proud of and they enjoy, they likely won't be back again, certainly not repeatedly. So we really need to deliver on that same as sensory experience together with all the other benefits that our process will provide. Yeah. I wonder how cultured fish or cell cultured fish differs from cultured meat, because with cell cultured meat, it tends to be something that people feel more queasy about also compared to dairy, which seems to be an easier topic to convince people of because it's already sort of processed. And with fish, I wonder if it's similar because people are more detached from what the process of fishing is and what it goes through. So do you feel that it's easier to convince people of cell cultured fish than it is to convince them of cell cultured meat? It's a great question. And this, the uh, psychology of the consumer is something I certainly are very familiar with. And you're absolutely onto something because uh, people think differently about different parts of their plate and their meal occasion. And they're very forgiving for some products they historically have not thought about sausages for those who consume that or even certain types of candy and how it's processed. You know, nobody thinks twice about it. But then when you talk about protein, it's very different. And to your point, terrestrial animals are very visible. There's some familiarity, you know, the visits to farms and awareness. And some people are very emotionally attached, obviously, to cows and some people are detached. But nonetheless, they whatever reason, seafood, to your point, is something that we don't literally don't see, even though it's, it's called seafood, but uh, <laughs> we don't see it and it's under the water and people are detached and they don't understand. It's so complicated, frankly, there's wild and farmed, which one is sustainable, which one is not, does it vary by species? Is Atlantic or Pacific better? Is What season is the best? It's very confusing. Where, where terrestrial animals, it's a consistent continuum of supply. Mm. And and in the sea animals, there's so many options. There's so many wonderful fish that have historically been consumed and people really have very little familiarity with them. So you're absolutely right. So we do feel it might be a, a simpler process, but I think also, Marina, what's really important that we found already in our research is a couple really important differences between terrestrial animals and sea animals, aside from what you just mentioned, But there's, first of all, there's human health issues. In fish, swimming in the waters, unfortunately, there's a fair amount of environmental pollution. People are familiar with microplastics, environmental pollutants. These are not issues that exist in terrestrial animals. Both situations have things like antibiotics that exist in that supply chain, potentially. But in sea animals, there's, uh, uh, and also issues with illegal and unregulated fishing, with the potential of vulnerability, with acidification or warming oceans that could really greatly threaten our supply chain. But we've actually found that human health, including mercury, was a very significant issue. As we talk consumers, you know, we want to know why. What gets you motivated to try cell-cultured seafood? 
Yes, they're very excited by sustainability, but what really hit home was mercury, microplastics and environmental pollutants. Mm. These are things that they realize that they are ingesting. And then when we talked to a whole nother population of restaurant operators, we found a whole nother benefit. Uh, unlike terrestrial animals, they told us about lack of consistency in their supply. When they're dealing with seafood, they have so much variability in supply. They don't necessarily trust their suppliers. The quality is not always consistent. So the word consistency was a big problem. So again, Blue Nalo solves another existing problem. So right now, you know, that a product might be experiencing going through 10,000 miles of shipment from, say, Southeast Asia to, say, New York City, experiencing maybe um, 30, 40, 50 percent bycatch and then maybe 60 percent yield at the restaurant. Our product is 100 percent yield made locally so to speak. you know. So we're really redefining local in this demand-driven model. Those are things that are very differentiated from terrestrial animals that we heard quite over and over. Mm. Yeah, quite interesting. We have been discussing in this season that for cell-cultured meat companies, it may be strategically important to not bash animal agriculture, let's say too much, because it pretty much triggers the corporations to try to push against cellular agriculture. Obviously, if jobs are being threatened, it invites them to, for example, lobby against cellular agriculture. But then in terms of cell cultured fish, we have a different situation. As you said in our last interview, actually in your case, the corporations are happy to have you. Supposedly, I would love to see if that's still the case. But you said last time they are glad because there's such a dysfunction in terms of too little supply and too much demand. So they're actually searching for ways to get new sources of fish and they don't see it as much as competition because demand is really widespread. And would you say that this influences the messaging so that you can actually sort of bash the conventional fisheries and they wouldn't go after you? We have no desire at all to need to bash anybody because I think fundamental to our case with cell culture seafood is your point, the global demand for seafoods at all time high, our supply cannot even come close to keeping up in the decades ahead. So Blunalu is a third solution. It's all about feeding the planet. So that's why we've been very successful at collaborating with the seafood industry and the food industry in general, because we are dealing with a global problem with an increasing volatile uh, supply chain of seafood with not enough supply. We're overfishing the oceans. We have no choice but to find a new solution. Another one that I didn't mention yet is we are literally working on species that are typically imported. So we're not even competing with the seafood industry. We're actually complementing it. Wherever we go to market, our goal is to work with local economies, local processors, so mahi-mahi, for example, is one of our first species, is almost entirely imported in the United States from Peru, Ecuador, and Taiwan. What Blue Nile is doing is displacing imports, creating jobs, building factories, not competing with existing industry, but actually supplementing and displacing imports and building factories and helping the economy while making healthier products for humans uh, that are sustainable for the planet and obviously humane for animals. So it is a win-win all around. So we don't have any opposition. And in fact, it could be the opposite. It could be all about collaboration. So, I mean, you are obviously aware of this little thing that happened called uh, Seaspiracy. <laughs> and I would be curious to hear how you would evaluate the influence of this documentary, which showcases the issues in our seafood industry. How 
does it influence the adoption of cultured seafood? Because, by the way, there's also a documentary on cultured meat, which is called Meet the Future. And you can look at the at a few previews on YouTube, dear listeners. Yeah, and, and I see Meet the Future, and I uh, there, there's some other documentaries that are coming out as well. But I think, as we mentioned earlier, Marina, I, I mean, there's been so little information around the conventional practices of the seafood industry. There are clearly very strong actors in this industry. And there's those that are very weak. It's true of every industry. I think Seaspiracy certainly focused on the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses that do exist. So I think the first thing that we all need to do is to become more aware. And that's what Seaspiracy did. It created more awareness and that there are better practices and poorer practices and that we should ask questions. And that's the first beginning of change of behavior. So as we talked before about kind of the human psyche, when it comes to consuming seafood versus meat, the same thing begins in this way too. It's documentaries like that that make you ask questions and of your waiter, of your server, of your seafood retailer. What practices do you use? You know, People may continue to consume seafood, but they should ask questions about sustainable practices and, and look for those certifications. And those programs that are out there do differentiate better actors from poor actors. And you know, again, I think what, what it did, it was created awareness, which is always the first step in, in making a cultural change. So in, in that case, it was very successful, but certainly it was a bit one-sided in really showing the negative aspects of it versus some of the more positive ones. Mm. It seems to me that the fish and the dairy industries tend to be easier to tackle because consumers seem to be more open towards these products as it doesn't create such a weird, queasy feeling. But then my question is, why is there so little entrepreneurship in that space compared to cultured meat. I mean, the last time that we spoke, you said that you got a lot of patents in the space because, so there was mainly research on mammal cells, but not that much on the fish case. And in episode 12 of the podcast, I talked to Isha Datar about the tricky situation that because there is so little public research, private companies need to do a lot of the ground research and then also hold patents, which are pretty much the basis of creating these products or maybe very important to even advance um, in the production process. And in a recent follow-up interview with Isha, we touched again upon that and she advocated for opening up all patents for the betterment of the world, right? And to focus on companies differentiating by the speed and excellence of production and also their brand. So I've been wondering how you see that because if you hold a lot of the patents in the space, I mean, it's great. As an investment case, it's fantastic, right? It makes it way easier to get VC money. Um, but do you consider opening up your patents or would you say that you holding on to these patents does hinder competition in the space? Well, first of all, I, I love New Harvest and all the work that Isha and her team are doing. And you know, we are all collaborating in various ways, you know, on the regulatory strategy, on nomenclature work, as we discussed. In the world of technology development, and you describe patents, you know, it's not just patents, but there's under the umbrella of intellectual property, there's either patents or trade secrets. Yes. Companies like Blunalu are maybe less likely to disclose patents and more likely to maintain trade secrets. Just like, as you probably heard a hundred times, you know, Coca-Cola's uh, formula is a trade secret, not patented. Nobody knows what it is. That's very common in the food industry to maintain trade secrets because when you issue a patent, it can, in fact, 
be actually replicated by others by making uh, some modifications to it. So one needs to be very careful of what one patents in the first place. So there's there's always the logic, what is a pro for patent, what's a pro for trade secret. But nonetheless, there's clearly is an opportunity over time for companies like Blunalu to either license their trade secrets or their patents to others for the betterment of all. And we're certainly not opposed to that at all. We all need to gain our own maturity. And I think just like I equated what we're doing to the computer industry, you know, there's uh, Intel inside in many computers, whether it's a Dell or a Mac or what have you. So, you know, the computer industry in the 1970s is very much like the food tech industry in the 2020s here. It's beginning what will become an extraordinary revolution in how, in our case, how we eat. I truly think this is as transformational as the computer sector was in the 1970s. Uh, we will see 50 years of, of evolution here, which will result in all kinds of collaboration and next-gen products and, and continual innovation. So, you know, we are all the forerunners in this whole brave new world of food tech and food solutions that I really feel very confident will transform how we eat in the coming years. I do believe that the, the majority of the food that we consume in the next two decades will not be animal-based, but it will either be cell-cultured or plant-based. As these products come to market and as the infrastructure develops, we all need partners again, as I mentioned. The partners will come from operations companies that can help us build factories, dis distributors or marketers that already have trucks that are going to uh, different locations and also supply chain partners. And we also would be each other. So, you know, this, this whole industry is all about partnerships, but we all need to gain our, our foothold first and really figure out what's working. But, you know, you're absolutely right. I, I do see that over the next five years, those kind of collaborations occurring. Lou, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Our in-depth journalism is made possible by donors, grants, and companies supporting us. If you are interested to reach a bright and pretty damn amazing audience of food tech professionals in 70 plus countries, let's talk. Just ping me at change at red2green.solutions. Change at red2green.solutions. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.